Hello and welcome to Emerge, Evolve, Lead, a podcast for people in recovery from addiction who want to be better leaders. I got clean and sober when I was 24, and then I started my corporate career. After several decades, I left that job and created Emerge Leadership Academy, where I train leaders and coach people in recovery who are ready to step up in their career. My name is Maureen Rosgem, and I'll be your host. Sober since she was 24 years old, my guest today is Mara Nelson. She chose the road of recovery 15 years ago and has created an awesome life for herself, which has impacted many others. She, along with three other sober leaders at Salesforce, created an affinity group at work called Soberforce, which now has almost 300 members. This is a huge breakthrough to eliminate the stigma of alcoholism and is a fantastic model for other organizations to follow suit. Hi, Marn. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today. How are you doing? I am well. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Me too, because you, I think, first of all, we have a lot in common and I want to explore some of that. I also would love it though, if you would just start off by telling us maybe your sobriety date, a little bit about your family, your hobbies and what you do for a living. I love that. Okay. Uh, well, nice to meet everyone. I'm Marn Nelson. I'm regional vice president for Salesforce in the Enterprise Service Cloud Group. That's a mouthful. Uh, mm -hmm. I live in Afton, Minnesota, uh, which is just outside the Twin Cities. So my husband, Darren, and I have four children, blended family. So two stepkids and then twins who are four and a half. Oh, we wow. moved to a farm in COVID because that's how we survived COVID. And it was oh, the biggest cool. blessing ever. Um, so that's my family life and my work life. I got sober when I was 24, like you, uh, yes. May 8, 2005. So oh, yes. Next life. week. Yeah. It's my, it's my, my birthday is May 5th. So I have that's not by accident. Those dates are right next to each other. So next week is the celebration of me. I turned 40 and I have 16 years sobriety and then it's mother's day. So it's a good wow, week. Wow. <laughs> that is a good week. And it's spring. And it's spring. Are Yay. you having spring in Minnesota? And I'm vaccinated. Yes, yeah. all the flowers are coming out. It's I know, right? Like there is light. We've so arrived much in the to light. Celebrate for sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's let's dive in. I would like to know a little bit about um, your past. Like, how did you figure out you were an alcoholic or needed to get yeah. into recovery? And what yeah. happened? And how did you hit your bottom? Great question. And always good to talk about this around an anniversary too, because it's good yes. to keep it fresh and remember, and it does genuinely feel like I can feel it like it happened yesterday. Um, so there was no big event that happened other than a really long hangover from a birthday. And um, I grew up with a dad in recovery. So my dad is celebrating, now I got to do math, I think 33 years this summer. Um, and uncles who were long-term sober, one of his sons passed away, um, from cancer, but he had, he had like, I think 38 years sober when he passed away awesome. and my other uncle. So I have three uncles in recovery and then I have other family members who are active alcoholics. So I had an example from a very young age of what a sober alcoholic looked like and what an active alcoholic looked like. And so I suspected for myself from pretty early on, I started drinking at 14 that, I maybe didn't think about alcohol in the way other people were because I was obsessive about it right away. Um, in planning, how was I going to get, you know, where was the next party? How was I going to get alcohol? Who was going to get it for me, et cetera. Um, and I, uh, 24 years old, living in New York city, 
had a moment of grace is really the only way to explain it. I'd read online that people on May 5th had a wish day and their wish day was May 8th and that they needed to wish for clarity. And I couldn't tell you what this website was. I could never find it again if I tried. Um, But I woke up that morning extremely hungover again, not unique situation and terrified and just feeling truly like, like terrified truly terrified that I was going to get, I was going to kill myself. There was going to be a situation where I was going to die because I was drunk, not getting home safe, right. Getting hit by a car, something happening to me, especially and, in New York city. Yeah. It's right. 24 New York city Scary place to be there when you're not in control of yourself. Drunk. <laughs> I mean, just not good. Really, really lucky. Um, and I was standing in the kitchen and I remember remembering, oh, it's May 8th. I need to wish for clarity. This website I found said to wish for clarity, I need clarity. And I saw a very clear fork in the road and I was standing at the fork in the road. And I saw my dad and my uncles who had these very fulfilled, sober, alcoholic lives with families and joy and purpose. And then I saw another family member who was active in their addiction at the other end. And it was like, in my head, I just heard really cloudly pick your path. Wow. And I, by the, I, you know, and I say by the grace of God, and when I say God, I mean, all spirit of the universe, um, is my belief system, uh, that I needed to pick my path and both paths were really scary, but right. Indeed. Oh yeah. Not having alcohol was terrifying. Especially at 24. Yeah. I was continuing to live an alcoholic life was also terrifying. And thankfully in that moment, I thought that the path of staying an active alcoholic was scarier. So I called my parents and I, it was mother's day. And I said, happy mother's day. I think I have a drinking problem. <laughs> and my sweet mom was like, I'm going to have you talk to your dad. Cause this is his area of expertise. Wow. And, um, and I went to my first 12 step meeting and I haven't found it necessary to drink since then I've stayed in the middle of the pack. And I'm really grateful to all the women who came before me, who continue to share their wisdom with me. And I try to do the same. And here we are 16 years later. And were you already in a relationship or married at that point or single? And what happened with your family? I had a boyfriend who liked to drink martinis out of big plastic tumbler glasses. And I tried to get him sober that first year. I did not succeed. No. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So no, otherwise I was single. And I had, you know, the outside looked good. I had a job. I worked in the nonprofit healthcare sector at that point in my career. Um, I had my rent paid. I had friends. I had relationships. So like that, I was very conscious of keeping the outside looking pretty good because I knew it was a family disease and I knew it was genetic and I didn't want to be found out before I was ready to be found out basically. And so I, now that would have all gone away. Had I kept drinking, I would have, I have no doubt I would have lost all of that. Right. But at that point in my drinking, I still was barely by my fingernails holding on to everything. Um, but it was emotionally incredibly unmanageable and was very much depressed and highly anxious and, um, pretty miserable. Yeah. And when you're that age and you're trying to figure out who you are and how you really fit and it feels good when you're actually buzzed, but then when you're not, it doesn't, and you just can't figure. Yeah. It's, it is scary. It's a scary time. Yeah. Agreed. So what happened with, um, I'm curious to know, did you grow up with a sober father or did did. you know? Oh, you did. Okay. So you knew it doesn't get any better. I know. I'm very, very lucky. I thank him every anniversary on his and mine. And we present each other our medallions, which is very sweet. Oh, that is. Um, 
And it's also as much for us as it is for everyone in the group, because a lot of people don't have that gift of multi-generational sobriety and active sobriety. And that's not lost on me that I was lucky to grow up with a dad who chose recovery and still chooses it and still is very active in his own 12-step program. So I had that example without an intervention, without him pushing it on me. I just had the example of what it was to be sober and what did that look like? And so it saved me no doubt many years of pain to have that example my whole life so that when I was ready, I knew what to do. Right. Yeah. Perfect. And I had an example of that in my, and my uncles too, were both active in recovery. Were they his brothers? Yeah. His older okay. two brothers. Yep. Man, that is I what know. a blessing. When I was 24 and I first got sober, I also knew because I had gone to Alateen because my dad was an alcoholic practicing. He had gone through treatment when I was like 22 or something like that. And the, and my mom had been in Al-Anon for like 10 years at that point. So when I took a geographical cure to Texas, I live in Connecticut to get, you know, figure out and make my dreams come true. I, Uh, created all the same shit that I had created up here. So I realized that I was the problem. And, um, and I remember, you know, getting, I I decided to go to Al-Anon because I figured the reason I was so messed up was because of my father was an alcoholic. (laughs) And then she, and then I finally had my last few drunks, which were absolutely horrible. And then I told my Al-Anon sponsor and she said, you should talk to my husband, which I did. Anyways, I started going to the program, to the rooms. And I called up my mom and I said, after like, I don't know, maybe 10 days of sobriety. And I said, I was crying. I said, I I, I was finally ready to admit Mm. I was an alcoholic and I was crying. I said, I got to tell you, I'm an alcoholic. And she said, oh my God, I've been praying for you. I'm like, are you kidding me? me? (laughs) How did you know? And she's just like, I've been praying for you. So yeah. yeah, And, and um, my father, you know, he never really quite got it. He Mm. never, he became more of a binge drinker instead. I think he would go periods of sobriety. And, but anyways, we, we did, I had to work on a lot of forgiveness and the things that we work on in the program, but it definitely um, helps to have a parent in recovery, knowing and, you know, not enabling me, right. But just loving me anyways, through it all. Well, God bless my aunt too, who's very active. My aunt was married to my oldest um, uncle who's passed away and she is hardcore in Al-Anon, very strong boundaries. But she was the one who took me to therapy every week when I was in college and she would pick me up and she is the, she's literally a saint. She's the sweetest, kindest person, but also has amazing Al-Anon boundaries. And I remember her saying to me one time when I got back in the car after going to therapy, um, I had to roll down. It was middle of winter in Madison, Wisconsin, which is University of Wisconsin, Madison. She goes, I ha- it's freezing cold out. And I had to roll down the windows because my car smelled like a bar after you're in it. Wow. Like, the booze I was sweating out and smell of smoke and like that stuck with me. And I'm so grateful to her for saying that because it planted that seed of like, Here's yeah, somebody who really loves me. And I see a little you. Bit, yeah, I'm ashamed. And I see you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'm just letting you know that I see you and I'm here. Yeah. But every week she'd drive to the campus, pick me up, drive me. And she is still very much involved in our lives. My mom passed away last summer um, from cancer. And my aunt has just been amazing. I mean, she's here in the Twin Cities with us. She was actually just at our house she and my dad come out every week to take care of my four-year-old twins for a little bit so they can have arts and crafts class with aunt judy 
That's nice. I'm incredibly grateful that I have those examples in my life of sobriety and Al-Anon, principles of Al-Anon, because that is definitely my foundation. So it's funny because the next question I usually always ask, and you've already answered it, is um, why do you think you got it? Like, why do you think you stayed sober till now? And it's almost like, how could you have actually gone out? You could never have gone out with a family and a support system. I mean, I could have. People do (laughs) it. And you watch those examples of people who are, I think that's just so painful, right? Like we can't save anyone other than ourselves. But no, how I got it was listening, really. And it's like, you know, doing the things I didn't want to do, but doing them anyway, because I was too scared to keep doing what I was doing, which was terrifying. Right. And so the fact that I, you know, I heard get a sponsor, go to meetings, don't drink, put yourself in the middle of the pack. Like I, the image of um, a herd of sheep and being, and I remember hearing this in the rooms in my first 90 days was like, do not be the sheep on the outside, be the sheep in the middle because oh, you'll get picked off by the wolves. If you're in the, on the outside. Interesting. I've never heard that analogy, but I like it. It sticks with me. It's like, find your pack, stay in the middle, stay in the middle, keep it simple. Like Love it. one day at a time. Right. And yeah. you don't have to be been, a leader. And hard parts. I mean, let's not, let's be real. This has not all been sunshine and butterflies and rainbows. Like there have been spiritual bottoms in my program that were really scary where I had to get really serious in treating anxiety and depression. And, um, where, you know, when my twins were born and I was like, basically just constantly feeding and taking care of two newborns. Wow. And I got far away from my program during that period because you get far away from everything when you're raising twins. Um, and I remember having, when they were around like seven months old going, why does every other newborn mom get to have a glass of wine at the end of the day? You know, you'd see these posts of like, oh, is it time to have a glass of wine? And those thoughts started creeping back in. Like, yeah, why isn't it? Why don't I get a glass of wine? And that was what I'm grateful for is that like, I've learned to respect. I've always respected the disease of alcoholism and the fact that I am not above a relapse. And there's nothing special about me that makes me an alcoholic who doesn't have risk of relapse. Right. So like, when that thought popped up, I called my sponsor. I got back to meetings. I figured it out. I have a supportive husband who t- never questions when AA comes first. I should stay anonymous. Sorry. But when, when my sobriety comes first, um, has always supported me, even though he is not an alcoholic and he's just a normal person who can take it or leave it. Yeah. Um, he has always supported me on that. And I'm super grateful for that. Cause that's, that's a non-negotiable. Like my sobriety has to be first. Yeah, always. I learned that same thing. And uh, I yeah, recently had a good friend of mine who, um, well, she hasn't been through a divorce, but about 33 years, her husband was sober when he went back out oh. and couldn't struggled oh. for about six years in and out, in and out. And then finally um, went out to treatment and decided not to come home that he wanted a new life. And it's been, it's mm. devastating when you have 30 years of marriage and, and things don't work out. And, but you know what, everything that we go through that is really heart wrenching or where we have to do some soul searching, it obviously makes us stronger mm-hmm. and we can help other people. We have to be that light, which is brings me to my next um, point about anonymity. I mean, I grew up in AA, I know. And, do you hear how I slipped? And I was like, oops. <laughs> it's not an oops anymore. I don't think. I think that the traditions, I've respected them for so many years. And I 
um, belief that some people will continue to, you know, hardcore say, not say that, but I don't at all worry about that anymore because this past year has shown me that we need to step up, those of us that are in recovery and say that we are um, sober and we're leaders and we can help you and life is so much better than you could ever imagine. And you don't have to, not only do you not have to drink and drug, you don't have to gamble or over shop or overwork or you know over sex right. or over gaming or any of those things. Right. Eat, eating too, right? I, <laughs> I got the yes, COVID-19 <laughs> eating pounds. I relate, me too. <laughs> That's still, that's still, like, yeah, still working on that one. Yeah. But I, I have, you know, decided it was hard, but I decided yeah. I'm making a podcast. I'm going to talk about this stuff. Yes. Yeah. I was raised in the program and I do believe in everything it offers, but, but some of those rules, I think were made for stage four alcoholics in the forties and fifties and sixties, and they just yeah. don't apply to this century anymore. Because I, we, we are hiding. Whole, I feel like we need to have a whole workshop on that topic. Seriously, yeah. because I struggle with it because I, on one hand, well, I well, struggle with your- it because it's such a for- core foundation. I'm so active in the 12 step program still and always have been. And so I try to then respect what are the things we talk about. And one of the principles for those who are listening and are like, what are they talking about? Is this principle of anonymity and being anonymous in press, radio, and film. And I think it's so about interpretation of that tradition that varies widely between people. Right. So like for me, I try to maintain my anonymity, although I fail at it and I just failed at it, but like, I try to do it because I don't want to, I don't want to ever have someone who is struggling, look at me and say like, she embodies all things of this 12 step program. And then when I show up as a human being, because I am, and I have flaws, to have someone write off the entirety of this 12 step program based that's on crazy. how I'm representing it. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I think I do. Where that's what from. it was intended for. Right? That was, okay. that was, yeah, that but was intended. My flip side of that to what you're talking about is that I think it matters to say how we stay sober. And there are so many of us who have very successfully stayed sober for a very long time in these 12 step programs that to keep it shrouded in mystery also feels like a disservice. So I have not come to, I haven't had my like peaceful resolution that sounds like you've had yet with it. I think I allude enough to it that anyone who knows anything about 12-step programs can pretty quickly guess which one I'm talking about. Um, But yeah, I do struggle with it. Like, am I, am I, is, cause it's, I want to keep my ego in check. I don't want this to become about like, I don't want to be the face of it. I'm not the face of it. I'm one person with one experience in this program that's worked for me. And I'm also very aware and conscious that I do believe there are many paths to recovery. And I love I agree. what we're doing with Sober Force because it has facilitated everyone sharing their own stories and like lots of different paths, which I benefit from hearing. I know my path and my path works for me and I have no question about my path, but I love that there are other paths that work for other people because yeah. the more paths there are, the more people who can have happy, fulfilling, healthy lives. It's just like, there's many paths to God too. Correct. And Jesus isn't the only way and, right. you know, and all of that other stuff. So, so before we jump into sober force, cause I do want to hear about that. I'd like to know about your career, how it evolved, how, um, what were you doing at the time that you got sober? How long were you sober before you decided to step into leadership and tell me about that journey? Oh my gosh. Oh, well, I feel like I've been working for a thousand years now. Ah, yeah, you're, you're only 20, halfway done. 20 years. Sister. I'm halfway there. <laughs> um, okay. So, which I'm grateful for, cause I feel like there's so much more to do. 
I'm actually, in a, I feel like I'm in, in such a good spot in my career right now and it's exciting and fun. And I'm like, I, you know, feels fresh and new anyway. So that's good feeling to have when you've been working for a while. Um, I started out when I got sober, I worked for a nonprofit in healthcare doing um, training for people who for, like primarily like training for Planned Parenthood. So we get Title 10 funding and it was um, national conferences generally to people providing uh, healthcare access for uninsured or underinsured populations. So I did conference planning. And so I do conference planning for people who worked at Planned Parenthood for current trainings needed and all of that to stay up to date on certifications. Um, and I did that for about I don't even know, two and a half years, not very long. And it was an amazing place. First of all, like I'm still connected to some of the leaders from that organization, just an amazing group of individuals doing really, really important work who were incredibly supportive of me when I got sober. And I really should have been fired because I showed up hungover all the time to that job. And they were so loving and embracing. And it was exactly where I need to be when I got sober. Um, and about a year after I got sober, I was like, I need to be outside of the cube world. It's not for me. This isn't my personality. Like I cannot just be in a cube working, even though the work was really important. I believed in it. It wasn't my personality. So then I went on the journey of like, who am I? What do I want to do? And then I landed in commercial real estate in New York. And I did hmm. that until 2008 and the market crashed. In sales? Point, in, yeah. Okay. Sell, representing um, uh, owners of commercial properties in New York city. So selling, so like hardcore sales training, like me and a bunch of dudes from Jersey, basically. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> which is perfect for your personality, by the perfect. way. <laughs> totally was like me in the guy's locker room and it was perfect training. Um, and then I, you know, at that point I've been in New York five years and was missing my family and ready to come back and have been sober for three years at that point. And the market crashed. And I was like, I'm not that attached. And I knew that commercial real estate was not something you could pick up and move. Like it's all about your connections and your knowledge of that very specific market. So this is like 2008. Yeah. Nine. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not committed enough. So then I came home and I found my way into um, software sales. And um, where was home? Minnesota. Oh yeah. Okay. Minnesota. Um, and I started doing software sales in 2008 and targeting health insurance providers. So a lot of solutions around enabling people with choice, with information on the quality of their healthcare, um, different software solutions that we we're startups that we we're selling to the United Healthcare of the world. So I did that for 10 years. And then I started working at Salesforce four years ago after the birth of my twins. So I took time off when they were born and I went back when they were nine months old, um, and yeah, Salesforce has been amazing. It was the first big company I've ever worked for. I'd always worked for smaller, like early oh. stage startups. And I went there because the culture and the values aligned with me, what Benioff speaks about in his push for equality and for climate change and, you know, or being an activist to fight Same climate change. values. And yeah. And did you get hired right into an executive position? No, no. I was hired as an individual contributor and I came knowing I wanted to be in, the le in leadership and be a people leader, but I also felt like because the leap from a startup, which is a different, you know, same sales, but different, right? Yeah. And I was like, I need to figure out what it means to work at a, this giant company. And what does a sales motion look like here? And who are all the resources? Because you have endless resources um, in support when you work as a company like Salesforce and in just our culture too, where you really do feel like everyone's in the boat with you, but you got to know how to navigate and steer that boat. Right. Um, and direct it. And so I did that for three years. And then I started in leadership last year. 
Okay. And it's been so amazing. And I feel like I lean so heavily on the work that I've done in this 12 step program and being a sponsor to other women. And I really do derive a lot from that as well as from my own personal experience of being an individual contributor. So um, let's yeah. talk about that. Tell me what are some of the skills that you've learned in le- in recovery that lend itself to your leadership success? I think being an uh, empathetic listener for one. Yes. Number one. Good. And being willing to lead authentically and vulnerably and mm. still having boundaries. So the boundary part, I probably wouldn't have had earlier in my recovery, but you know, when I think about the way I used to share in a meeting when I first got sober versus the way I share now being focused on, uh, experience, strength and hope, right? Like what's my solution, not just like, what's the problem, but what's the solution. Yeah. And, um, but I'm willing to share that those pieces of me where I feel like it will be of help or of service to others and opens the door for others to be their human selves, but that we are focused on what are we bringing to the table? You know, how are we bringing value? How are we being of service? I mean, it's all the same. Like that's kind of all the same, right? (laughs) Well, it's somewhat. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're um, helping people to develop their, their own selves and how to think about themselves and what right. their value, what they're bringing. And that way um, they do add a lot more. And when you're vulnerable, you're building trust. You're telling people you're dependable, you're reliable, you're consistent, you're there, you're empathetic listening, and then people will follow you and they'll do almost anything for you. And they might, and we've seen it happen before where a leader leaves a company and a whole bunch of people go with them. Um, obviously we're not talking about that, but so then you had this brilliant freaking idea to do say a sober force like this. I would just have loved to do something like that, you know, back in the day at the Hartford, but I didn't, you know, I didn't, well, it wasn't, it wasn't okay. Then. Our hope is that other people yes. follow suit. Like that That's is truly really the big hope is like, so it was not just me. It was me and three others who connected and started with Chris Anthony, one of my co-founders, Okay. Um, who posted on LinkedIn, he like came out, it was like coming out of the closet around sobriety and he came out as 15 years over and he never talked about his sobriety publicly before. Wow. He on LinkedIn, and He has a giant LinkedIn following. And I didn't know him at Salesforce before. In fact, all of the co-founders, none of us, well, at least for me, I had not yet worked with any of these gentlemen who are also sales leaders at Salesforce. So we got connected on LinkedIn um, through these posts where, you know, various people are following others and we all synced up the four of us and we got on a phone call and it was, I think, September of last year. And we just chatted about being sober long-term. We all have long-term sobriety. We're all in sales leadership and we just connected and it was so lovely. It's in the middle of COVID, middle of lockdown, right? And just like so nice to have a human connection that had nothing to do with our day jobs, but but we had this connection of the fact that we were all in sales leadership at Salesforce. And we said, well, wouldn't this be really nice to extend this out to others? Cause people are really struggling. Like we're all watching people relapse in our own home groups. Right. And yeah. know that there are definitely people struggling. Like statistically, I think it's 12% struggle with addiction in this country I've seen. And so no doubt there are a ton of us at Salesforce who are probably actively struggling, right? You just take those stats. Because every company, we have a microcosm of society. So you think at least 12% are probably struggling and more if right. suddenly we're using it to cope. Yeah. So we said, how do we help people? How do we extend our hand? And we started um, we started Soberforce, which was, um, we follow the guidance of our Office of Equality and our equality group. So we have a very clear like structure and existence of equality groups already at Salesforce. 
And you think about how vocal we are in the marketplace around you know, women's rights and LGBTQ rights and being activists for the black community and allies, right? And um, speaking out about injustices, like Benioff's very much a trailblazer in both the concept of you can do good and still do what, you know, you can do really well as a company and do good in the world. Like they are not exclusive of each other. Right. Hello. Right. It's not just for the nonprofits to do good. Like we can all do good as corporate citizens. Totally. Um, and so we have a culture in which it's safe and accepted and encouraged to talk about these things that matter. And so we felt confident we could stand this up and that we would have the support, but the support has been mind blowing. I mean, and the participation in it and the number of people who are getting sober in this pandemic who are willing to share that in this forum is incredible. Like how many in your group now? So I think we're just shy of 300, but I think my instinct is we have a lot of people who are quote unquote lurking Yeah, (laughs) because people have come out and said, I've been lurking since you stood this up in November and I'm just now willing to like go public with it. So because the stigma against addiction is so big still, which is a big reason why we started this also was to destigmatize addiction and destigmatize recovery. I think there's a lot of people who are watching our Slack channel, which is where we have all of our engagement for Sober Horse okay. and are probably just not publicly joining, but are very much paying attention, which is fine. I'm fine well, with that. The stigma could be from people who don't know. They don't have a problem and they think, oh, well, you know, you have a moral problem. It's, you know, it's not right. And you should just stop and you shouldn't act like that, and blah, blah, blah. And that's, I think, kind of the old thinking. But I think sometimes the stigma or this fear of people in recovery comes from, I just got sober. I'm really unsure. I don't know if I'm an alcoholic and I don't want to come out because people might judge me, especially if I decide to drink again. I'm not really sure because when you're not really sure, you don't want anybody to know. It's accountability for sure. If you come out as saying like, I'm sober, there is a level of accountability, which for me um, was like part of my approach to how I stayed sober in the early days was I was very public about it with my workplace as a means of accountability to myself. Perfect. Yeah. I out myself. Then then nobody's going to offer me a drink. (laughs) Then I don't have to say no. Someone needs to say something, right? I kind of put it on all my colleagues, good or worse. Like I, that's just what I did. I do agree. I think there is a concern of people going, what if I decide to drink again, or I'm not really sure what I am, which again, I am totally okay. If people are lurking, like Uh, I know we're having an impact, right? And sober curious. And we actually say that in our statement for the sober curious too. And then um, as far as the stigma of it, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and I still think there's an old school corporate culture that exists everywhere. It's just like, do we talk about our feelings in the workplace? And that's changing very quickly. And it's very much encouraged at Salesforce to lead authentically and vulnerably. But I do think like for those of us who've been in the workplace for a while, like that's not how it was when I came in. Like that would not, you did not talk about feelings. Like, no, like you didn't bring that to work. So that's a shift that's happening in real time. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it depends on your personality type, (laughs) (laughs) how much you're willing to share. And the culture of the place, how safe is it in your leadership, even the microcultures, like is your leader safe with that? Right. Anyway, so Sober Force was established as a community. We're an affinity group as part of the office of equality. And we're here to support people who are in active recovery and just creating community together. People who are curious about getting sober, sober curious, 
um, or need help and are seeking help and connection. Perfect. Um, and also for people who are allies who just like want to understand how to have a conversation with a friend who's struggling or a family member. There's a lot of people. Nice. Struggling. Yeah. So yeah. They're oh, showing yeah. up. And then what's interesting is like this opportunity to educate on, um, Hey, do we need another wine tasting or is there something else we could do? Can we do a cooking class? Hello. I know it's ridiculous how much, how many business functions, especially in sales focus around drinking. A lot. I think it's like an easy default. I think it's just a super easy default. And I don't think it's that people are unwilling to do other different things. It's just like they're unaware. It's hard in a virtual world. Like, what do we do? Right. Oh, that's true too. people, People are having that pause, which I'm super excited about of saying like, Hey, can I send you a bite squad gift card or a box of wine? And like giving, even just giving that choice because not all, not all of our customers drink. And not all of our customers are safe to drink and not all of our employees drink or are safe. To, you know what I mean? So it's like just that education. It's almost like asking someone their pronouns. I feel like it's similar. Like don't make okay. an assumption, ask, yeah. and then react from there as opposed to assuming, you know, cause you maybe don't know. I agree. Wow. That's, that's just so fantastic. I'm so glad to hear you say that. So if you were to, talk to somebody who was, you know, solid in recovery, maybe a a sponsee or somebody that was in recovery now and wanted to step into leadership, what would, what advice would you give them? Ooh, that's good. Um, well, I think of it as like when someone's ready to sponsor is like, what's, what's your motivation for doing it for one. And I think making sure that it's not ego driven and it's not like power hungry driven. Right. Cause that doesn't resonate. People don't resonate with that. Like you're not going to have a team who wants to follow you <laughs> or be on your team. If you're just there for the prestige and the title and the money, um, for sales leadership, I think you have to be, I think you do have to answer the question of like, what is why the first question I asked me is like, why do you want to go into leadership? And I listen for things like, because I really enjoy coaching others because I really love empowering others to meet their potential because I want to share my own experiences and help guide others on their path to success. If someone's like, because I really want to earn more, I'm like, then do not go into leadership because like you can make way more as an individual contributor by having like these knockout years, like that needs to be right. Like you have to really love coaching and being of service to others to enjoy leadership. I agree. Or or like be someone who sees patterns and want to operationalize at a higher scale and like have impact, you know, by going higher up on, Hey, I really see efficiencies I could bring, you know, operational efficiencies is a big thing for me. Um, and I want to replicate my success at this scale that I can't do as an individual. Like, I think that's another motivation, but you got to love people to make it work. Yeah, you do. I totally agree. What was the biggest lesson that you learned in 2020 that helped you? So much happened in 2020. Um, that I am way stronger than I give myself credit and that nature really does heal me like the simplicity of nature. So, you know, my mom was sick with stage four pancreatic cancer Oh, and we're in a pandemic and we moved and we had wow. four kids home from school. Uh, so not only am I stronger than I give myself credit, my family is incredibly strong. That's and not amazing. in a way that's like, we don't disclose we're strong in our emotional vulnerability and strong in our support for each other. 
and of ourselves. And so that was the biggest one. Cause that was a lot. And yet I don't look back and say, Oh, that year was brutal. I'm like, it actually was a really amazing, powerful, love filled year. And also some of the hardest stuff I've ever walked through. Uh, that'll make me choke up. <laughs> That's beautiful. Right. Because it's a place where you can really feel and be exactly who you are, like you said, with authenticity and vulnerability and heal your way through it. Yeah. Of, yeah. Stuff in it. And in. then I was able to be in my first year of leadership and like love it and, and it thrive. Gave me so strength. It gave me so much back. Like I'm forever grateful to that first team that I got to lead who just like fully had my back and I could still show up and do my job and like, but feel like. I was seen by my own leadership and by my team and that I was not in this boat alone, that they were all in it with me, um, was really incredible. I think there's a book in there. <laughs> maybe one day, maybe in 20 years. There you go. When you retire <laughs> early notes now. <laughs> and become a coach for yeah, people exactly. doing just what you're doing. Exactly. That's when you write the book. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No, this, and I, this is mine. I love that. No, seriously, I do love that. I love thinking about those things. Like what, what is happening in that stage? It's fun to think about. Well, so, yeah. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, for sharing your experience, strength and hope. I have so much hope that a lot of other companies are going to create sober forces um, or sober affinity groups in their companies because we do we do support each other. And when you know that somebody else is in the workplace, suddenly the morale goes up. It's so much easier. You have higher productivity. You have higher levels of happiness because you're not alone. Yes. And connectivity is what it's all about. So yes. yeah. And then you yes. have engagement too, right? I mean, all of that. And it's been, yeah. it just is beyond inspiring how many people have joined Soberforce who are counting days sober and are brave enough to say it. And then the support and love that they get from people who they would have never otherwise met because we're exactly. in different areas in the company or oh. locations. It's just amazing. It's it like, amazing. it just, and to your point, like it just furthers my commitment to Salesforce. Cause I'm like, no one can replace this. This is nope. incredible. Like we are building something really meaningful here. Yeah. Um, and I hope and, other companies do it. And they're letting you do it, which yeah. really retains you, right? 100%. It's, it's, yeah, it's totally, it's definitely the way to go. So again, thank you so much. If people want to get a hold of you, how can they reach you? On LinkedIn, Martin Nelson, uh, you can find me there. I think you'll recognize me. I think <laughs> there's probably some other Martin Nelsons, but I don't know. I think I'm pretty easy to find. Um, and please do, I if anyone's listening who wants to do this at their company, um, definitely contact me because I would love to see this replicated elsewhere. And I just, I just know the power that it has to all the things you just covered off on that you said so eloquently, like this needs to happen elsewhere because people who are struggling with addiction are everywhere. And also people in long-term recovery are also everywhere. And if we can bring them together 
and have the support of the company, it just, to your point, it just drives so many positives. So, and I who hope are sober curious, it. it gives them the courage to step yeah. in. Okay, these are people I know who are sober and I, I could do this right at work. I don't have to go to an anonymous yeah. program. I, I can do it right here, which yeah. is super awesome. Yeah. Maren, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, uh, this podcast will probably be out about a week after your anniversary. So happy anniversary. <laughs> Enjoy your Mother's Day and all of the beautiful spring and celebrations that you have coming up. I have so much hope for you and your career too. Thank you so much. It was so lovely being here chatting with you. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends. You can visit us at EmergeLeadershipAcademy.com to take the quiz to find out what animal best represents your leadership style. And until next week, remember, you have so many leadership skills that you learned in recovery. Stop hiding because your contribution matters.